So, um, so today we're going to close out the book of James. Um, he kind of, he kind of repeats himself or solidifies some stuff he's already gone through. And if you look on your outline, I've, it's been so long since I've taught formally. I've been trying to figure out the style. I think we're just going to go through these, um, these, these uh, two chapters, just read them. We could basically, without much explanation, just go through and read this and you get it. That's kind of the nature of James. It's just it's so straightforward. <clears throat> and, uh, it's so thought-provoking, even if we just read the scripture and let the scripture be. But we'll have some discussions around some some of the highlights in these last two chapters. And, um, you know, James was written by Jesus' brother, James the Just. And it's a wisdom letter. It's a wisdom epistle. And a good working definition for going through this letter um, is for wisdom is that wisdom is God-given insight into God's will and the desire to do it. And some may say, why not just do it? You know, why just the desire? Well, we're here, so we're going to get in in this chapter. You do what you desire. What you think, what you feel is what you do. So if the desire is there, you're going to do it. Humans do what they desire. And that's just the reality of who we are. So if we understand God's will and our desires to do that, we're going to do it. And, you know, we may not do it perfectly, but it's going to be the character of our life. So that's what James is getting at. Is your life characterized by a living faith? So we'll start at the beginning of chapter four. And you can see I titled the section um, Worldliness and Pride. And he goes on to say, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it said God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So there's so much to extrapolate from this, but kind of what we talked about last week. We live in a world that's swimming in envy. And what that means is that the world um, is not uh, very much concerned with their own selves, being content in their own selves. Um, it's always looking to the outside, things in the world for satisfaction, fulfillment, comparison. <clears throat> so what James says here is that, um, you know, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your passions um, are at war within you? Um, and so he's going to go in to say, uh, 
the, the fruit and the root of envy. So the fruit of this, this collision, this discord with other people, he says, is murder and covetousness. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So murder and covetousness lead to, lead to this division. And like I said, it's a little, could be a literal murder, but more often than not nowadays, it's a character assassination, which is far more um, uh, sinful. And so those are the fruits that we see when we're, when you look into the world. Um, you know, I live in, <laughs> it's funny, I have, there's so many examples. If you're around people, non-believers, uh, I just remember one time we were sitting out by my house with some neighbors and there were a few of us guys there. And one of my neighbors hadn't been on the side of the neighborhood. He was pointing around like, I know them. And I know, yeah, I, I used to hang out with Eric a lot. And I was like, uh, isn't that what's her name that lives in that house? And those guys like, yeah, I heard she's a real B, B word, <laughs> you know, just casually, you know. That's how my neighborhood, when they're together, they sit in a room of judgment, which we're gonna get at. They, 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 they analyze, they're, they're so insecure apart from Christ, which is essentially what it is. And the desire is to be God, essentially, and to have what others have, and to be what others have, and be better at it, or be, at least be seen to be better at it, that it's, it's innate to tear people down. And then that translate, can translate into the church easily too. So that's why James is addressing it. And this should not be how we live, as James says. But he gives the remedy for it. <clears throat> he says, um, if we go into God's grace, <clears throat> he says you're adulterous people if, if, if friendship with the world, so how do you tie that together? Friendship with the world is operating the way the world operates so instead of taking instead of humility taking account to yourself loving the lord with all your heart mind body and soul and love your neighbor as yourself you want to be in the world you want to be seen as something you want to look down upon others that is friendship with the world that james is getting at and if that's how you want to operate then understand this you are an enemy of god because that is, as James is talking about, carnal, demonic, worldly. And of course, the remedy to that is God's grace. So there he says, he talks about the scripture. And I didn't note where that comes from. Does, do you know where that comes from? He yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. I, I didn't, didn't check it. If you have a study Bible that references that verse. But anyway, he's just... I don't think he's quoting anybody anything there. Okay. It's just a, maybe a tradition or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. You draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, your sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So God's grace is what allows us to operate in wisdom the way that he wants us to operate. And the first thing that we see there, you know, he talks about submit therefore to God, resist the devil because the devil's going to want you 
to make yourself. Satanism is not, Satanism, most Satanists don't um, worship a literal devil. Most of them reject ideology. The way Satan has deceived most of these people is Satanism is the ideology of you as God. That's what Satanism, there's a clip that I used to show um, some students I taught of Marilyn Manson talking about his Satanism. We don't believe in a little devil. Satanism is you can become your own God. And that's essentially the essence of it. And that's what you're doing when you're operating with this divisiveness that seeks to put yourself above others. And so you want to submit yourselves to God's will, not the devil's will. And then he goes into something here, draw near to God. I think he puts that first because that is the, the first step for us as believers. You have to ha rely on God's power to cleanse your hands, to purify your hearts. It's a reverse of the Old Testament where the priests would go in for sacrifice. They would first confess their sins, cleanse their hands, and then go into the temple. Now we draw near to God first. We cleanse our hands, which is basically we repent of our actions, and then we purify our hearts in the sense that we confess our sins and let the Lord deal with our hearts. So his grace is there. And when a lot of times we take this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Um, it's mentioned in Peter. And we take that as this, and it can be this way. He, he opposes the proud. The prideful men of the world are, are enemies to him. But it's actually a grace to believers. When he says he opposes the proud, I think James is trying to say, look, if you belong to him, he's going to oppose you. It's a grace for God to oppose you when you're being pride. It's a judgment of God if he lets you go headlong in your pride. So James is giving us some gospel here. And he's saying, if, um, if you insist on your pride, God is going to oppose you. So humble yourselves so he can just give you grace. And a big part of this is, um, you know, embracing humility is that point. Because, and draw near to God, and so forth. Because the only thing that's hindering God from working in our life is us. That's, that's really the only thing, is that we don't want to come to God on his terms. And we're going to get into some of this as we go on. Is, um, you know, we, we um, don't come to God. You know, that's really the only thing, is drawing near to him in humility. Not in perfection, not in um, sinlessness. You can never draw near to God in sinlessness. Drawing near to God in humility. And he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's repentance. It's like a characterization of repentance. It's not, oh, look how good I was, God. Please take me in. That's the position of um, an unregenerate person. The position of a believer is weeping and mourning. If you've ever had those instances where your sin is brought clearly to your mind, you know that feeling of, oh, my gosh, what, what, who, why, who was I? And it's a, it can cause some involuntary emotions, and it should <clears throat> Oftentimes, especially when we um, commit grievous sins, 
And so, you know, embracing humility is the key to a godly life. Um, and uh, so it's basically a world, it's, you're going to go the way of the world or you're going to go um, submit to God. And the submitting to God is through humility. The only way you can truly submit to God is through a posture of humility. The only thing that you bring to the relationship with the Lord is the sin that needs to be forgiven, essentially. Everything that God operates with us is grace. In the Garden of Eden, it was grace. And the, our problem, as we're going to see as we go on through these pride examples, is it's, self-righteousness is always the greatest enemy of godly righteousness. The first thing they did in the Garden of Eden is they found some fig leaves and sowed themselves some fig leaves, and they thought they could deceive God, you know? Oh, look, we're not naked, God. We have these fig leaves on. And God has to come through and make them a better garment. And that's what, that's a lot of our battle, um, as we're going to see. So let's go through some of these uh, prideful examples, examples of prideful people, or prideful situations. There's a lot we could draw from some of these, but... Um, you know, just for time's sake, we can hit some of the important things that I think James is trying to get across. And here in verses um, 11 and 12, uh, James says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. Um, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And again, this goes back to um, a lot of what James has talked about. So James is always getting at the, the, it, the greatest issue in your life is not another person. Um, it's not the World Economic Forum. It's not a compromise government it's not laws all those things pale in comparison to how is your relationship with the lord and what these prideful examples reveal is that um really we're not the problem it's other people that's what the pride is going to show so he says um so, so when he's talking about the one who speaks against the brother then he goes on to say um, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Uh, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. These people are the people who have made, have judged what God's law is, have added to it or subtracted to it, and applied that standard to the other people around them. So essentially, if you sit there and judge God's law, and how it's being executed in another person's life without first rendering in your own life, you are making yourself to be God, which is the essence of pride. And uh, he says there's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. That's the Lord. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And um, this, this, there's a couple of means that have been, um, both are valid, in the totality of scripture. Um, here, the point could be, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Just straightforward on the face. Who are you to judge your neighbor? 
you, you don't even live up to the standard you're placing on them and you're making yourself God and determining a standard that you yourself don't live out to or you're, who are you to judge your neighbor? You're not God, could be what he's saying. But it also could be, um, you know, some take it as a call to examine yourself. Some people take it as a call to, who are you to judge your neighbor? So let's shine a spotlight on your life, your personal life, your relationship with your family, your finances, your health, whatever. Let's go through your life and shine a light on that. Are you able and pure to judge others from a place of superiority? And of course, from scripture, that answer is no. Um, so the context is probably about who are you? You're not God because it's a prideful thing to sit in a seat of judgment as James has talked about before. So let's go on to the next one. This is a, this one's a, this one's a good one. It comes to my mind a lot when I talk to people. Um, it uh, starts in verse 13, 413. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. And so um, this is essentially denying God's providence. I'm, I just did some business with a man. Um, I think he's, he's in his 60s. I think he's retired. And he travels a lot and does all this stuff. And he talks as if, like he's told me um, with some of his investment stuff, yeah, I, you know, I, I really could last like 20 years. You know, I could, I'm not in a, in a hurry. He's like in his 60s, you know, just from practically, he's not in good shape, you know. But this man talks as if he's just, he's got another 20 good years to go. And that's the essence of someone uh, who doesn't understand God's providence. Again, like I'm, I'm the determiner of my life. I know when I'm going to die or I know what I can do. And so that's the thing that he's getting out here. You are not God. Um, you know, God's, God's providence dictates our life. So humility is the answer. And it's not to say, um, that everything you have to qualify every time. Like, like you don't have to qualify Hey, I'll see you on Monday for lunch, Lord willing. You can say that if your conscience wills it. Godly people, I mean, it, it, what James is getting at is always the heart. He's not getting at some religious thing that you have to do. You don't have to qualify that. Or, or when you're talking to believers and they're making plans, if they don't say Lord willing, you don't have to say, whoa, I wonder if he, some pride. <laughs> Godly people don't have to say it. James is getting at the heart. It's more of your attitude. Do you believe that, you know, you're gonna, that do you believe that life's just going to go on and your plans will go and nothing's going to stop you? It's pride versus humility. So it's not, you don't want to get into the thing where, you know, they didn't say Lord willing, so we should discipline, call into the church and discipline. It's really, it's, again, it's the heart disposition. 
of humility and understanding God is God and he's controlled every day of your life. Um, the next example um, comes from verses 5, 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry. Is this? No, we're moving on. This is, um, those were some godly. Oh, the rich. I'm sorry. I missed this section. We're going into chapter 5 now. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who moved your your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous. He does not resist you. Um, so this is, so when we talk about James, there's this, the wealthy and the poor. That's why he gets at, that's why he's telling them, um, you know, where he says that the rich man comes into your congregation um, in chapter two, he's like, don't be partial to them because James is writing to a church that's a lot of division between wealthy and poor people. And the wealthy people at this time were really um, exploiting the poor people and even causing a lot of bankruptcy through the court system and all kinds of evil stuff. So this section here, James is, he's not warning against being rich, I don't believe. Because like we discussed, it's not a bad thing to be rich. I think James is writing this for his people so they don't envy the rich. Because the state, the state of a rich person apart from um, humble repentance and dependence upon God's grace is this. And James is saying, don't envy the rich person. So he's trying to fight against the pride in the people he's trying to minister to. Don't envy them. Look at their state. They can have everything in this life, but they are going to end in a bad situation. It's like, um, you know, in so many instances in scripture, with the, and even the psalm he says, where I discerned, David, I think he talks about where these rich, they get away, they get wealthier and wealthier, their life is good, their children go on and live long lives, and then he discerned their end. So that's probably what James is getting at. Again, are, do you want to be friends with the world based your value, based the things you love, based the way you operate on the way of the world, just divisive, judging other people, criticizing other people, slandering other people, envying other people's wealth, or do you want to live um, in submission to God through humility? So I think this section is basically... Um, just saying that, you know, he's just warning, don't envy the rich. They're, they're not in a good place. Even though you perceive that through a worldly paradigm, they're not in a good place. Um, and 4.17, just going back real quick before we move on to the next one. So it says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him is sin. That goes into that definition of wisdom. So God given insight into God's will and the desire to do it. If you've been given insight into God's will, 
or you know God's will from the law in any situation and fail to do it, it's sin. And Paul, Paul gets at this with the conscience a little bit in Romans, but that's that that line, it um it seems kind of out of place, but in the whole context, it's basically like if you know God's will, you know, um, do it. If you don't, if you taking your matters into your own hands and making plans um, arrogantly, you know, it's sin. I think that's what he's getting. I just wanted to. I'd had that note on the side that I wanted to relay that. So whoever knows the right thing to do, it fails to do it for him. It is sin. That's the opposite of wisdom. Um, so let's move on to um, these last two sections here, and then we can, may have a little time for questions and discussion. Um, so patience and life, verses 7 through 12, 5, 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for precious fruit on the earth? of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains you also be patient establish your hearts for the coming of lord is at hand do not grumble against one another brothers so that you may not be judged behold the judge is standing at the door as an example as an example of suffering and patience brothers take the prophets who spoke in the name of the lord behold we consider those Blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So 5, 7 through 11, he's just getting back at that steadfastness from chapter 1. Kind of a reiteration as he's closing out the the the, the um, letter. Be steadfast. Lean on the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Um, don't take matters into your own hand. Don't um, you know? Don't don't find a way out. Don't sin. Don't take the easy way out in your steadfastness and trials, but depend on the Lord. This is. Uh, you know, this is a big thing um, that separates Christians from the world is that, um, you know, the battle is the Lord's. And our biggest battle is to draw as near to God as possible. If you, if, if you want to really become powerful in the spirit and learning his will, you just want to draw near to him. And that's why James says, if you draw near to him up in, um, I think it's four. Yeah, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is the most pressing thing in our life as Christians is to know the Lord intimately. Because that's when the living, uh, the water, the living waters, they flow from us. We're walking in the spirit, you know, and that's when you're basically as much like Christ as you can. Christ, Jesus, when he was on earth, was, um, you know, there was no instant where he was not completely led by the Spirit. That's why he didn't know some things that sometimes, because he just said, God, whatever you do in this moment, microsecond, he let the Spirit lead him. 
and um, that's that's what we want to do. So when in patience and suffering, there's always a temptation to, you know, take an easy way out. Could be pills, drugs, alcohol. Could be scheming, lying, manipulating. Could be denying our faith. And James is just saying, um, be patient. You know, look at look at the the Lord is in control. Um, you've and he gives some examples of. Job and the prophets, you've seen the purpose of the Lord. He's compassionate and merciful. He's not harsh. You're going through something hard. It's, it's a momentary affliction into what the Lord's doing in the grand scheme of things. So that's kind of what he's getting at. And then by 512, um, you know, when he gets at the swearing, he throws it, this kind of an aphorism. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. It goes back to not being double-minded, being integral with who you are. Whenever you're saying a lot of words or this and that, you're basically, where many, words are many, you know, there's a lot of, there could be a lot of deception and lying going on. And so you want to be in such a place where you know who you are and you can have the courage to say yes or no without having to swear on something or, and right, getting to the point where your yes means yes, and you know it, and people know it around you that your yes means yes, and your um, no means no. It's just being integral with who you are. It's not not saying one thing and doing another. It's kind of how I think it's meant to be taken. And again, all this stuff is from the heart. Um, it's a disposition. It's not like an exact method of how to live your life. These are wisdom principles that are embedded in your heart and then work out in their, your various situations in life. Um, all right, this last section, uh, 513 through 19. Uh, I'll read uh, 13 through 18 and then we can talk about it. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Um, you know, pray without ceasing is what Paul says. And this is James kind of leading out. Pray, praise. This should be the characteristic of your life. If you're, if you're mourning, pray. If you're praising or if you're joyful, pray. And then he goes into some, you know, we get this passage here where James says, if you're sick or um, need healing, you know, the uh, let the elders anoint you with oil and pray over you. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And that's, I mean, even reformed people do that. I mean, we all believe that prayer can heal people where we wouldn't pray. I don't think it's, um, have you ever had instances? Have y'all done oil? praying or with oil or anything like that. I know some, there are some Reformed churches that do. And uh, some people, 
have seen healing from it, you know. It's just, uh, it's what the Lord wants to do. Um, but one of the things that's neglected is that when he says, this is a problem basically denominational-wide or church-wide, if you confess your sins to one another, confess your sins and pray for one another that you may be healed. So the idea of confessing sins um, is not as prevalent, I think, as it should be. And in this context, I think it's a physical healing, but it's also a spiritual healing. And, and confession of sin isn't important in the church because uh, there's two ditches that we can fall into. One, sin is taken lightly. You know, oh yeah, we sin, we're sinners, we're gonna sin. So we just come do our church thing. If we serve and say all the Christian things, we don't really have to confess about who we are. And then on the other pitfall is that we just don't think sinners, Christians sin anymore. So these environments produce, um, both environments are bad because both cultivate heinous sins in the background. If you're in that environment, sin's not that bad. People who tend to licentiousness, um, you know, they can, they can come to repentance uh, through the spirit and stuff. But if it can just, people can have secret sins and, or sin, they can assume, like Paul says, if your conscience is seared, you, if your brother sees you going to the temple to sacrifice to meat, you're in this situation where people just think sin's light. So you with this pornography or um, whatever sin that you have going on, lying, whatever it is, you just think, oh, well, that's just what Christians do. On the other side, if you don't think Christians still sin and confession's not that important, you cultivate a place where people pretend like they're righteous when they've got heinous sin going on in the background, and that gets real dangerous. And I've seen, I know through just a few personal examples within the last couple of years, with churches that operate like that, and it turns out there's child pornography, molestation happening because you're in a church where people can't confess their sins or they don't feel free to confess their sins and um, you know the context here is healing but again it's a spiritual and a physical healing when we when we can't confess our sins um, to one another there is a great damage that goes on there's a lot of dangers that go on and again, in the church, because we're in such a chaotic cultural thing, we, we again, we're in these battles out here. We forget again that the greatest battles in us. So we can let our sin cultivate. And if we understand we're failures as Christians, we're going to, like, if you can't be with brothers and sisters in confession with the little things, when it gets big, it gets really bad and people leave the faith or people cause great destruction. So you always want to bring sin into the light. And as believers, there's no reason not to because where, where else are sinners supposed to go? You know, where are sinners supposed to go? To the Church of Latter-day Saints, to Islam. They, the only place you can have your sin dealt with is at the foot of the cross. So confession's integral and it should be... Uh, you know, a part of every church. And um, it's just, you know, it, it's a problem church-wide because of the nature of our culture and um, 
us where we're at. Uh, and then the last part here, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So one time, the thing that came to mind as I was looking at this is somebody told me one time, I think it's my mentor in uh, seminary, and he said, um, your lack of concern for other people's souls is a reflection of your own, of, this care, of the care of your own soul. So if you can interact with people and the eternal state of their soul as you build relationships and stuff, it's very far from your mind. It's a reflection of the cultivation and the seriousness of you take with your own soul. And I've always thought about that. And so when I go through months or long seasons and not really caring about how people are walking with the Lord, whether they're brothers or not, I always take time to, ref to, to reflect. So restoring a brother who's strayed, um, it's a beautiful thing for you and for the person being restored, of course. So it's something you know, James puts in because it's important that... Uh, you know, we need to look out and rescue each other. You know, that's what we're here for as, as believers. You know, we're not, there's going to be people who go astray. And you, you, as long as you guys have been in church, I'm sure you've seen that. And sometimes they're not coming back. Um, but, you know, James is just giving you the wisdom on what your situation is. You may not be able to do much in certain situations or you may do it. The most important thing is, is does your heart seek for them? to come back into the fold or is your heart judge a judge well they did that they're cast off <coughs> who cares about them that should never be the position of the christian even when they're cast off your heart should be to pray for them so we got one more minute left that's it for james uh any got any thoughts or comments or questions it's a it's a i talked to someone yesterday it's their favorite it's their favorite letter. It's a good one. It's, it's got a lot of good stuff in it. It's not as bad as Luther made it out to be at the time. <laughs> There's a lot of gospel in there, I think. Any comments or thoughts about the, the book as we close it out? What, what do you say to the, uh, the section on anointing with the elders? I think that's where Roman Catholics get their, uh, their doctrine of extreme function. And it, it sure sounds like it, what he's saying there. He's almost saying it's almost certain that it will cure them. Yeah. But that can't be what. Yeah, I wouldn't say. I think there's a lot of contingencies, too, because um, that's why he puts in the confession of sin. I mean, you, you, the oil is not some magic thing. And, uh, you know, the Lord doesn't always heal. I mean, Paul had some kind of thorn in his side that he asked the Lord to take away, to take it away. So biblically, if you take that verse out of context, you could get that, which is what Catholics do a lot of times. <laughs> they take verses out of context. But the totality of Scripture says the Lord will heal, but he might not, you know. But I think ointing, using oil is not a bad thing. It's not, you can recoil against it because it's been abused. But I know, like I said, I know um, even, I know a PTA church has done it before. Or in the city of Greenville, I know that they do it. But they don't look at it as, you know, some quick fix. But yeah. Anything else?
Cool. I'll pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this word. I pray that you use it to change our heart and help us to live for you and for your glory. We thank you for all you've done. and We thank you for Jesus. And uh, we pray that your spirit will draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.